Father, this morning we will have opportunity to give you thanks not only for the role of shepherd that you have placed in the church body, but to thank you particularly for those that you have granted to be shepherds over us. These are your men that you have placed here for just such a time as this. And we are thankful for them. And as we as we come to give gratitude to you for them and commend them to the work of the ministry that you have given to them, might you, as we come to that time at the end of this service, might you give us wisdom this morning to understand the role of shepherd and to have clarity about what you say about shepherds so that we might submit well to them and that we might honor them and that we might follow them and that they might be further equipped for the task that you have granted to them. So would you give us understanding from this word? Would you give us clarity in this word? Would you give us joy in this word and what you have granted to us? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. My grandfather was a farmer. He immigrated from Russia to Canada in the early 1920s and was very successful as a farmer. As a young boy, I remember going out to the fields with him and, and helping, helping him as much as a five to seven year old can help his grandfather to the task. Typically what it meant was I would ride alongside him on the tractor. He would take a, a, a pail that he had turned upside down, put a burlap sack on it. I'd run, ride next to him on the tractor, and then he would occasionally stop and point, and I would jump down. I'd pick up a rock or a, a, a stick or a branch or something, pull it out of the way, and then climb back up on the tractor, down and up, down and up all day long. But that was, for a five-year-old kid, there just wasn't much better than that. He had um, He had all the cool instruments and implements that a that a farmer would have. And I remember going into his barn and climbing all over his tractors and thinking about all the implements and how the different implements would work and wandering around and playing on them, not realizing that it really was work also. I'll never forget the smell of that barn. That, that smell, that mixture of, of tractors and tractor tires and oil and diesel gasoline and hay and all the implements and dirt just kind of made this amalgamation of an odor that is, that is extraordinarily pleasant to me even to this day. Uh, while I loved that smell, there were certain things about farming to which I was not attracted. I was particularly scarred as a five-year-old when I was watching Chicken Slaughtering Day one time. Okay, so some of you have seen it. There, there is nothing like seeing a headless chicken running around a barn to just scar a child's memory. My grandfather was a farmer. He would probably be just a little bit disappointed to know just what a city slicker I am. I know, I live, I live in a small county outside of a large city, but friends, I'm a city slicker to the core. And I think that might disappoint him just a little. My grandfather was a farmer. My father is a shepherd. He's a magnificent shepherd. 
In fact, he is the great shepherd. There is no shepherd like my father. He understands sheep. He understands particularly his sheep. He is wise in finding them when they wander. He is powerful to protect them when they are attacked. He has never lost one of his sheep. He is patient with them when they do silly and sinful things. I speak, of course, of our Father in heaven, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, the omnipotent of the universe, is a shepherd. Isn't it interesting that, well, shepherds were despised people in Israel. They were perpetually unclean, both physically and ceremonially. They were generally uneducated. They were at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. They were despised and hated on multiple levels for multiple reasons. And yet God has associated himself with shepherds. In fact, as far back as the story of Jacob, God is identified as a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd is the master of the sheep. The the shepherd provides for the sheep, even as we saw in Psalm 23 this morning. The shepherd nurtures and feeds the sheep. The shepherd is compassionate towards his sheep. And, And shepherds who don't do that are unfaithful and condemned. And we find multiple examples of that in the prophets, particularly in the book of Jeremiah. When God explained to his people Israel how to care for his people, he picked the imagery of shepherds. It was the imagery he used for King David as David would lead Israel. He was a a shepherd of Israel. It's the imagery he used for those who would lead the people spiritually. He called them shepherds. It is the imagery that he uses for those who will lead his church. They are shepherds. How do you care for God's people? How do you disciple and train and equip people to follow God? You care for them in the same way that a shepherd cares for his sheep. This morning we're going to continue thinking about spiritual disciplines in the new year. We've talked about scripture. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about evangelism. And this morning we want to think about church and ministry We want to think about the role of the church in caring for its people and how God has designed that to happen. It's appropriate for us to think about that today, particularly because we have just affirmed again two weeks ago a number of men who will serve for us as elders and deacons. And and I want to take some time at the end of the service this morning to pray with them and to pray for them and to pray over them commissioning them to the task that God has given them. And as we move toward that prayer, I want to look at this one passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 that will instruct us about the role of shepherds and elders. What, what are shepherds, what are elders, and what do they do? The Apostle Peter may have been a fisherman by trade, but he was a shepherd by commission of his Savior Jesus. And he tells us about the spiritual care of God's people through the role of shepherds. And it is from Peter that we learn in this passage that God cares for his people through the loving care of his shepherd elders. How will God care 
for His people in the church? How will God provide for people in church? How does God lead people in the church? He cares for them through the loving care of those who are appointed as shepherds and elders in the body of Christ. As we think about this role, we want to consider three aspects of the shepherd's life. What, what are these shepherds and, and what are elders like? What are, what are elders called to do and how are they called to do it and what is the benefit to it? We will consider the elder's duty, the elder's motive, and the elder's reward. We start in verses 1 and 2 with the elder's duty. The elder's duty. And the first thing I want you to notice is that shepherding is a divine responsibility. Shepherding is a divine responsibility. While the sentence begins at the beginning of verse 1, the main verb that Peter is going to get to is not until verse 2. And the main verb is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. We're going to expand this idea when we get to that part of the verse, but but to shepherd means to provide care for those who are in need of it. Now, we, we can take instruction from what Paul says to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. A shepherd's role is to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with everyone. It is, it is to serve the body of Christ according to the need of the particular individual. And we should notice as we come to this word shepherd in verse 2 that it is a command. It is, it is a compelling call. It is, it is a requirement. And, it, and there is a sense of urgency to it. It is, if, it is as if Peter is saying, here is this responsibility. Now get busy about the task of caring for God's people. It's, it's an essential task. It's an urgent task. It's, it's an important task. We are to get busy about the task of shepherding God's people because it is a flock. Notice he says, shepherd the flock. But it's not just a flock, it is a beloved flock. That word flock is actually in the diminutive, which means we might translate it the little flock. It's a, it's a term of endearment. It's a, it's a term that says there's just a, a little and beloved and sweet and an embraceable body and flock of people. It, it's an endearing term. These are God's beloved flock of people. And there's an urgency to take care of them because they are beloved and because they belong to God. Notice as well, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. It's not just a, any kind of people, but it is a specific group of people that God has entrusted to the shepherds and, and put under their care. So, so don't just shepherd anyone, but shepherd the particular flock, the ones that are around you, the ones that are with you. Be sure to care for them. Notice in verse 3, Peter will pick up this similar idea when he says, nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge. They have been granted to you. They have been commissioned to you. They, they have been sovereignly placed under your care. They are, they are granted to you by God. And the shepherd does well to care for them. They're not just any people. They're God's people and they are the shepherd's people. 
You know, I think, I think often when I am placed in a situation where I have an opportunity to care for people, very often what runs through my head in that moment is, Lord, you could have had anybody here. Of all the people in all the world, however many people there are, six and a half or seven or seven and a half billion people in the world, and this person with this problem today, you have, you have granted me the privilege of ministering to them. They're not just people. They're not just God's people. They're my people. And I have the privilege of serving them. That, that's, the, that's the attitude of the elder that says, I get to do this for the people that God has placed among us. Again, notice that this is a flock that belongs to God. It is His flock. Grace Bible Church is not my church. Grace Bible Church is not the church of the elders. Uh, this, is, this, is not, this is not my pulpit. This is not the pulpit of the elders. In fact, I, I, I was talking to a pastor at the um, CBCD conference this year and, uh, and we were just talking about ministry and different things and preaching came up and I said something about, well, that's not my pulpit. I get to be the steward of it and I'm careful about who gets into it, but, he, but it's not my pulpit. And he said, I, I think my pulpit is my pulpit. <laughs> I get it. I, I do have I have do do have a stewardship over it, but it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. It's His, and these are His people. The, the, these are people that belong to Him. And friends, that means that every shepherd is not the ultimate shepherd. No shepherd, no elder in the church is ultimate. There's only one ultimate shepherd, and that is God. Remember what Peter says in chapter 2. You were continually straying like sheep, verse 25, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. There's, there's one who stands preeminently above. And every other shepherd and every other elder is only an under-shepherd and an under-elder and there is one who is preeminent, and it is God. So the main verb, the main thing that the elder is to be engaged in the task of doing is to shepherd the flock of God, to care for the sheep, to nurture the sheep, to feed the sheep. But, but don't miss everything that goes in front of that in verse 1. The responsibility to shepherd comes as an exhortation. Notice he says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort. It's not, it's not a suggestion. It's an appeal. It is a command of God given through Peter to the churches of Asia. This is, this is not something that comes from Peter's own idea. It's not Peter's agenda. It is the agenda and the purpose and the plan of God. And, and it comes through the ministry of Peter. And notice how he identifies himself. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. In other words, I'm, I'm coming alongside you. I know what you're called to do because, 
because I also have been called to this task. I, I know what it means to be a laborer for Christ, and I am laboring and working with you. So let's work together as fellow elders and fellow workers to, to care for God's people. I, I know what this task is. I know what I'm asking you to do. I know the sacrifices that are involved, but, but there's no greater privilege. So let's get about this task of, of caring for God's people. Notice also he doesn't just appeal to them as a fellow elder, but he also appeals to them as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And when, when the word witness is used in the New Testament, it has two connotations. A witness of the sufferings of Christ can be one who has observed the sufferings of Christ. In, the, in this case, he has, he has seen the, the crucifixion of Christ. He has seen the beatings of Christ. He has, he has seen all the cost that Christ paid as he went to the cross. He observed it. He saw something. But, but a witness cannot just be someone who has observed something, but he is also one who, who proclaims something. So he, he serves to offer testimony as a witness of Christ. So he, he speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. He speaks of the sufferings of Christ. He speaks of the redemptive value of the sufferings of Christ and how salvation is to be found in Christ alone. And I wonder, as Peter says, I appeal to you as one who is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. If we aren't, if we aren't meant to go back to Matthew 27 and think about Peter's failure. Because he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but it was at the greatest suffering of Christ that Peter had his greatest failure. You remember when someone asked him, aren't you associated with him? No, I don't, don't know him. Really, are you sure you haven't been with him? Aren't you one of his disciples? No, not me. Are you sure you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ? As God is my witness, Peter said, I am not one of his. At the moment of Christ's sufferings, Peter saw them and he failed to give testimony. There's a sweetness to those words, isn't there? Not focusing on his failure, but focusing on his redemption. So while he failed in that moment, Christ later restored him to ministry. And then in subsequent years, Peter proved himself faithful as a testimony, as a witness of Christ. And I think this is a subtle reminder. We'll see this in a moment. I think this is a subtle reminder. Well, while elders should be those who are above reproach, while elders should be those who are exemplary, no elder is perfect. Peter was certainly not perfect. And there is there is still an ability to have confidence in men and follow men even as they follow Christ and even as they are led by Christ and even as they have been restored by Christ. Peter says, I'm a witness. I'm testifying to Christ's ability, Christ's power 
because of that, let's, let's get on with the task of applying the truth to the sheep that God has entrusted to us. He also compels them, exhorts them in one other way. He says he is also, at the end of verse 1, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. There is a glory that is coming. There is a glory that he will enjoy in heaven. <clears throat> he will say in chapter 1, he has said in chapter 1, that that, that um, granting of salvation is preserved and kept in heaven. And that's coming. But already, he says, I am our partaker of it. Already I am experiencing something of what is to come. And, and on the basis of what I'm already experiencing and on the basis of the hope of what is yet coming, let us, let us get on with the task of shepherding God's people. When you consider this command, shepherd God's people, shepherd the flock of God, and you consider the basis for the command, it is clear that this isn't just some human idea. This is, this is God's purpose. This is God's intention. This is a divine com- command. This is a divine compelling. This is a divine gifting and a divine strengthening. This is, this is God's work in God's man. It is a divine responsibility. It is also a mutual responsibility. It's a small thing, but notice verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the elders. That's a plural and not a singular. And, and while Peter doesn't specify a particular number that is mandated to serve as an elder in the church, he is emphasizing the fact that there is that there is more than one elder, that there are multiple elders that will care for the people of God. We find this as well even when when Paul calls for uh, men from Ephesus to come. Notice uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. So there are multiple elders that are serving together in caring for God's people. Uh, Paul will say something similar to Titus in chapter 1 when he leaves Titus in Crete to establish churches there. He said, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. So there is a, a plurality of elders. There's more than one elder. No, no one elder rules or runs the church in the way that he wants. There's a, a multiplicity of elders and they work together as one harmonious group with no single elder having authority over any of the other elders. They are co-equal in position. I, I thought about this even as I was uh, writing my message and thinking, do I want to go there or not? And I, and I think it fits in, in the same way that the members of the Trinity are co-equal with one another, that there is no one that is inherently greater or superior to the others, but they are co-equal in, in deity, though did having different responsibilities, there, there is to their nature an exact equality. 
So there is a co-equality of elders in the body of the church. There's no one that stands above the others. They work together in harmony with each other. No one has preeminence. No one has priority. What is this role of the elder? He says, I exhort the elders among you. What is the role of the elder? There are three primary words that are used for eldering, and they are, they are essentially um, used synonymously. So in Acts chapter 20, we've already seen this, verse 17, it says that Paul calls the elders of the church from Ephesus to come to him. So he wants to meet with the elders in Ephesus. He doesn't have opportunity to go to Ephesus to meet with them as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So he asks them to come to him. He calls the elders. That's verse 17. And then verse 28, he addresses them. And he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. So in those two verses, he has called them elders, and he has called them overseers, and he has called them shepherds or pastors. And those three terms he is using synonymously in that one passage. They all refer to the same person and the same position. And those three terms essentially just focus on three different aspects that the elder uh, carries out eldering uh, excuse me eldering points to his spiritual maturity so that so that he has a proven track record of faithfulness to the lord overseer points to his responsibility in serving as a guardian a leader an administrator over those who have been allotted to him and pastoring or shepherding points to his responsibility to feed and care for and nurture those who have been entrusted to him. So they all point to the same person, just emphasizing different aspects of what he does. Now in our context, as we think about elders, there are some who are paid and there are some who are unpaid. When Russell was serving as an elder, he, respond, he reminded us very regularly, he says, you guys are paid to be good, speaking to me and Keith, you guys are paid to be good, we're good for nothing. <laughs> you can take that however you want. Um, the point here is not that some are paid and some have priority, because the paid don't have priority. It means that there is a group of people that God has gathered together to care for God's people. There is no single man except for the God-man, Jesus Christ, who can care for and shepherd the people of God. So, so these men who are gathered together function equally as elders. They are godly, mature, capable, established wise men, not perfect men, but mature men. And they work together for the one goal of caring for God's beloved flock. Shepherding is a divine responsibility. It's a mutual responsibility. It's a caring responsibility. I skipped over one word in verse 1. Did you notice that? I skipped over the word, therefore. Therefore, so as, as Peter comes to these churches and he's explaining to them the role of shepherd, he's connecting the exhortation for 
elders to shepherd to a particular thing. And it is, it is, it is a command that is given in the context of suffering and persecution. Just scan back up to verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He carries that idea of suffering forward. And then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Therefore, because there is suffering and because because there are temptations that come with suffering, there are elders who have been appointed to come alongside and help. And this, this idea of suffering is not just there at the end of chapter 4. It runs all the way through this book. It starts in the first in the first verse of the book, it runs through chapter 2. In fact, every chapter of this book refers to suffering. Um, verse 18 of chapter 2, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are gent- good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 21, you have been called to this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. So Christ suffered and you will suffer and you know how to suffer well by following the example of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. We've seen the verses in chapter 4, chapter 5, verse 9. Resist him, speaking about Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So there is, there is pervasive suffering. This is a book about suffering. This is a, ber- a book about persecution. And, and Peter says one of the ways to care for those who are persecuted and suffering is through the ministry of the elders. They come alongside. Why why is that essential? Because, friends, when we are suffering, the temptation in suffering is to run. The temptation is to give up. The temptation is to despair. The temptation is to quit and to run away from Christ. And the shepherd's responsibility in part, and maybe even primarily, is to care for people who are attacked and weak and wounded and needy. To be a shepherd means to to care for those who are struggling. To be a shepherd means he serves those who are weak. He doesn't put up with those who are weak. He He is granted to this body for the purpose of ministering to those who are weak. That's why he's here. That's why the Lord has granted to us the shepherd's that He has given to us. Now that doesn't mean that all people will always struggle. In God's grace, churches can be healthy and churches can be strong, as, as Grace Bible Church largely is. But it does mean that it is the nature of our humanity and our fleshliness to be weak. And as long as we have this physical, fleshly body, and as long as we have the flesh related to our inner man, 
which we will have until we die, we will always be susceptible to struggling. And the Lord has granted to us men who have the role of helping us to go to God where we will find strength for our need. Remembering the analogy of shepherding in this passage, it's helpful to remember that sheep are defenseless. They have, they have no natural ability to defend themselves against attack, neither a defensive ability nor an offensive ability. No, no football team that goes to the Super Bowl is ever going to be called, you know, the Dallas Rams, or excuse me, the Dallas Lambs, right? Not going to happen. Why? Because it's not a very strong and authoritative and powerful figure. They're weak. They're inherently weak. There's nothing, there's nothing that denotes strength or capability in them. Not only that, they don't run very fast. They kind of, they kind of just amble along and are susceptible to attacks by predators who are much stronger than them. If a sheep is protected, if a sheep is safe, it's only because someone has protected it. And the Lord has granted to provide for us elders for our protection and for our safety. His role is to protect them from outside attacks, care for them when they are wounded, and take them to the great shepherd of the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. That's his duty. Notice also verses 2 and 3, his motives. We say this often around here, why we do things matters. It's not enough just to do the right things. Doing the right things for the right reasons is important. Others may not be able to see what we do, but the Lord sees what we do. And He's, excuse me, others may not see why we do what we do, but the Lord sees why we do what we do. He examines the hearts. And uh, first... 1 Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us that there's an accounting that everyone will give about why they have done what they have done. So why we do what we do is essential. And friends, why shepherd, excuse me, why elders shepherd people is also essential. What compels an elder? What motivates an elder? Why he desires the office of elder? is essential and important. I've, I've often said, based on, on 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the, the man has to desire the office. He has to want the office. And if a man doesn't want the role of eldering, then he's, then he's disqualified, not from a moral standpoint, but, but he has to want it. He has to desire to care for God's people. But we, we can't just say he, he wants the office. There are a lot of people who want the office, but they want it for all the wrong reasons. And, and this passage help us, helps us to see what the compelling reasons are for a man desiring the office of overseer. What are a shepherd's motives? Notice, first of all, a shepherd is a volunteer. It says, verse 2, he exercises oversight not under compulsion. He isn't forced and constrained to do the task. You know what it means to be constrained, right? That's 
That's what's going to happen when you take your children home today or your grandchildren home and you put a plate of broccoli in front of them or a plate of roasted Brussels sprouts, which happens to be one of our favorite things, but typically isn't the favorite thing of a four-year-old. That's, that's constrainment when, when the four-year-old eats the Brussels sprouts. I don't know of any four-year-olds that, that naturally gravitate towards broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Compulsion is, is what teenagers are faced with when making their beds in the morning and doing homework in the afternoon. That's being constrained. The elder does what he does, not because, well, I have to, so I'm here. You won't ever hear an elder show up at a counseling appointment or at a hospital room or a home group and say, well, I got to be here, so I guess, well, let's just, let's just get on with this. You won't hear them say that. You will hear them say, I am here because it's my joy to be here. I'm not constrained. Notice the apostle also says they do it voluntarily. They do it voluntarily. It's, it's the attitude of, sign me up. Send me in, coach. I want to do this. I, I was thinking about, about the, the volunteering nature of this, and I was, I was thinking about Isaiah. Remember, remember Isaiah chapter 6 and that, that amazing image of God's glory in Isaiah chapter 6 with God high and exalted and surrounded by the, the seraphim who are around him with six wings. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and Isaiah responds and says, I'm a dead man in so many words because I'm a man of unclean lips. And the Lord touches his lips and he says, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'll carry your message. And, and the Lord said to him, and we won't read the rest of the chapter, but the Lord said to him in so many words, I'm going to send you, Isaiah, but I just want you to know that in sending you, your ministry from, from external appearances is, is going to be an abject failure. They will not hear. They will not respond. They will not believe. They will not follow. And Isaiah went anyway. That's the attitude of the elder who says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the end game is for anyone. I have to go. I want to go. He goes, notice, voluntarily according to the will of God. God has designed. God has purposed. God has planned. God has set him in that place. And he says, I'm going. It is... It is a following of the great shepherd who said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The shepherd is a volunteer. He's motivated by volunteerism. The shepherd is sacrificial. Notice what else it says. Not for sordid gain. Sordid gain refers to something that might, might be phrased shamefully greedy. He does not live for financial gain. And he does not exploit others for financial gain. 
The term here particularly focuses on taking advantage of others and acquiring money dishonestly. It's not that he has money. That's not the point. The point is that he will never use his role in the body of Christ to take advantage of others, to manipulate others, to take their resources for his own personal gain. He might have money, but his money does not have him. His desire in his heart isn't for financial prosperity, and he would never use his position for that. Instead, he serves with eagerness, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. I think of the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I, I serve with eagerness. I, I, I'm willing to be poured out. I'm not only not going to take, I'm willing to use up all of my resources All of my gifting, all of the spiritual strength that God has given me, I'm willing to use it all up in caring for you. He doesn't serve to get, he serves to give. A shepherd is sacrificial. A shepherd is exemplary. You're familiar with the saying, aren't you? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? We're familiar with that saying, and that saying exists because it's all too common of occurrence of an, of an occurrence. We, we have seen that many times. There's a, a temptation to misuse leadership and authority for selfish ends, but friends, that's not the case of the elder of God, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. He, he doesn't exercise complete control. He doesn't, he doesn't impose his power over others for his own personal advantage. He, he doesn't manipulate. He doesn't intimidate. He doesn't hold himself higher. He doesn't, he doesn't hold himself in a prideful position. He understands that they have been allotted to him. And he doesn't lord it over them. But instead, verse 3, proves to be an example to the flock. He lives an exemplary life. He's not perfect but he is the kind of man that people can follow. So, so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, follow me even as I follow Christ. So we don't follow men just to follow them, but God does put men in our lives and we can say, wherever that man follows Christ, you follow him. He's headed the right direction. And that, that's the example of a godly elder that has been placed over us. Friends, every, every elder should feel the weight of the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I, I never get to 1 Timothy 3 and read that passage without almost throwing up my hands in despair and saying, who can meet that requirement? And yet there is also a sense in which that, that list of qualifications of elders is really very ordinary and is what every man of God should be. And it is what God enables any man to be. And friends, as you, as you look at the elders that God has granted to us, as we have appointed those men and as we have recognized them, we're also saying they're exemplary men. You can follow them. Not, not as perfect men, but as they're following Christ, you can follow 
them. They're exemplary in their lifestyle. So what's, what's in it for a shepherd? He has massive duties. He has strong motives. Is there a reward for the shepherd? Is there a payback? Is, is there a benefit to the daunting task of, of being shepherd? In a healthy church like GBC, there are immense privileges and there are immense joys. There's, there's the satisfaction of working with like-minded men and, and praying together as they pray for you every week. And, and there's the joy of serving a loving congregation. There, there's no distinction in the congregation with the elders between us and them. It's just, it's just a body of Christ and, and we're all, we're all serving together. I regularly say, in fact, this came up between me and Regine when we were having a conversation this week. I regularly say with the psalmist that the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I've been so graced to be here. Such an immense privilege. And so there's that reward. But I know of other pastors... But that's not their situation. I have friends who either serve or have served in very difficult places. The lines have not fallen to them in pleasant places. And they have elders and deacons that are serving alongside them who are not believers and act as if they're not believers. And they have rebellion in the body of Christ and they have people who don't love to hear the Scriptures taught. And they struggle Where's the payback for them? Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears. When the chief shepherd appears. That little phrase reminds us that there's one shepherd who's great and one shepherd who's above all. He is primary. And he's coming back. And he's going to take care of his people. And friends, you can look at elders who will at times fail you, and we will. And you can say that's an imperfect shepherd. That's true. But there's a shepherd we all serve who's coming, who is absolutely, infinitely perfect. And he's coming to care for his people. He is ultimately responsible for them. Christ laid down His life for His sheep. That's John chapter 10. And He will return to take care of them even on a daily basis. And when He comes to take care of His sheep, notice what else He will do. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. In ancient times, victors would be given wreaths when they won some kind of competition. But those wreaths would eventually fade and diminish. But there was one wreath that was made out of one particular flower, the amaranth flower. And that flower was said not to fade and not to diminish. And it's that word, amaranth, that this word unfading is taken from. And it is to say that there is no diminishment. The reward for the elder will not ever go away in glory. 
Why does the elder do what he does? He serves the way he serves. He pours himself out in the way he does, trusting that the Lord will balance all the accounts in the end and he will make things right and he will care for him in eternity. He doesn't need recognition now. He knows that God will provide for him in eternity. In a way, he's doing what all believers can do and should do. We live now looking for the reward that God will give us in glory. Heavenly reward is a motive for godly pursuits. And and friends, we shouldn't be afraid of that. It's it's a motive for all of us. and, And in this instance, it's the motive for the elder. He can trust that God will care for him eternally. There's a passage in the Psalms that speaks of the responsibility of David in caring for the people of Israel. It's a passage for King David. And then it ultimately becomes a passage for the one sovereign king who will follow in the Davidic line and rule on David's throne for all of eternity. But it's also an exemplary statement about how leaders lead and how shepherds shepherd. Listen to Psalm 78. The psalmist says about David, From the care of the ewes and suckling lambs, he, God, brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with his skillful hands. God brought an unimpressive man, David, and put him over his people to lead with integrity and skill, character, and competence. And that is the same calling today for the shepherds that God has placed over his church. And we thank God for the shepherds that God has given us. And we commend those shepherds to him that they might care well for us even as Christ cares for us. As we close this morning, what I would like to do is to pray for the men that God has given to care for us, the elder shepherds that he has granted us, and the deacons who work alongside them to accomplish the work of the ministry. And I'm going to ask the men to come forward.